Welcome to today's edition of Front Porch Talks. I'm Grayson Willis. Today's edition of Front Porch Talks is a live teaching session that took place here at Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene on Thursday morning, February 6th, for a group of Nazarene pastors from the Virginia District. Starting out this session, Sarah Kinzer came and shared a devotional. She was followed by Pastor Todd Thomas from Timberville, who came and shared about his book on the Sermon on the Mount. Then Pastor Cameron Dunlap from Roanoke came and shared about the context in which he ministers in. All right. Well, welcome to Teaching Church. Thanks for braving uh, the weather this morning, swimming in, hydroplaning in, however you got here. I asked her to share devotional. Um, she'll share a little bit more about that, but Sarah actually wrote a devotional. Um, on this idea of holiness. And so I'm sure some of what she's sharing will be out of that. But I've just asked her to begin our time this morning uh, in the Word and in prayer and giving us some focus for the day. And then uh, we're going to spend kind of our morning time before the break talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And so I've invited um, our good friend here, Todd, to um, share with us. He's got a book that is on some of the tables in front of you there. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. We'll talk about the book later. Um, asked him to share a little bit about his journey, uh, and then I'm going to ask him a few questions as it relates to some of the content. I think it'll be really good dialogue for us. And then we're going to end the day. I did invite Cameron to come up from Roanoke uh, to share a little bit about ministry within your context. And uh, I know a little bit about his ministry context there, not a lot, but I'm excited to hear about uh, how God's using him specifically within the context that he's ministering to, how it's a little different maybe than some of our context, but then what we have to learn and how we can adapt that within the context that we are serving. So I think it's going to be good stuff. I'm excited to uh, receive and uh, be a part. Um, but with that said, I want to pray, and then Sarah's going to come. She's going to lead us in some devotion and some talk, and we'll have some time praying for our district later. Uh, but let's, let's quiet our hearts for a moment and uh, just recognize God's presence here among us today. God, thank you that you are with us. Um, it's my favorite part of Christmas when we talk about Emmanuel, but I get kind of sad when that season ends because I want to talk about Emmanuel all year round. You're still God with us. And so thank you, God, on a rainy, cold February morning, you're still Emmanuel. Amen. You're still God with us. And so we, we thank you uh, that we didn't have to get your attention this morning and wake you up. We didn't have to drag you along here to teach in church with us. You were there with us the whole way. You're here with us now. You're present among us. And so why do we come? Why do we do this, Lord? We, we believe uh, that leaders are learners. And so we want to learn. We want to be teachable. Uh, we believe in peer-to-peer learning. We believe that uh, you're teaching us often through others. And so we want to be moldable and shaped. We believe in community. We believe that we're better together. And um, some of us in the room feel isolated. We feel alone. Even with staffs and even with those that we minister alongside, we would feel a little bit isolated and alone, and that's not your will for us, especially within the church, God. So teach us that we need each other. And moments like these, Lord, help us. Uh, We want to know you better today, and we certainly uh, want to know one another. So be with us now. Uh, Be with Sarah as she shares and the others that come to lead us this morning. We love you, and we bless your name. Amen. 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 Hey, Adrian, it's February. Did I say February? No, it is February. You know what the nice part of February is? 
No. People stop bugging you about your New Year's resolutions oh, and asking you what your goals are and what you want to do for the year. That's real nice. I like being in February. If you want to take out your Bible, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 11. Um, I want to take some time to encourage you um, in the area of goals and uh, vision and what you want to do, you know, this year, like your ambition. Stuff you're not supposed to talk about in February. All right. So I'm going to start on verse 1, and that's Ecclesiastes 11. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, and eight. You don't know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain out on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you don't know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that or both will do equally well. So what we have here is a passage which in essence says, try stuff, do stuff, beware of the stuff you know about how stuff works, but recognize that God is the one making the stuff work, and therefore, you don't know all the stuff. So try stuff and do stuff. I mean, that's good stuff. That's good. I like it when God's clear like that. I'm going to tell you a little story about myself. When I was in second grade, Mrs. Mangeli gave us all the same Christmas present. We walked in, and there on each desk was this nice, shiny, wrapped square. And the kids came in, and they started unwrapping the most teachery of all gifts, a book. It was great. The girls were holding up their books, and it was about princesses and fairies and ponies, and the boys got books about astronauts and animals and sports. And they came to find that other kids in the class had the same book. She must have ordered on bulk, but my book was not like their books. I had the only book in my class that was this particular book. Its main character was a mouse. And the story, if you could call it a story, was about how this mouse wrote and published a book. He had an idea, and he did the pre-writing. Mouse sent his book off to the editor and waited and made corrections. He sent it to a publisher. He went and visited a printing press. He got a copyright, and eventually, Mouse saw his book in the store. I was in second grade. I really wanted to know where my pony book was, you know? But when I say that people have told me my whole life that I should write a book, I mean my whole life. The night that I was entirely sanctified, Pastor Carey walked past me and locked eyes with me, and he said, Sarah Kenzer, the writer, keep writing. And it was like I had heard my name, what I'd been called my whole life, and yet it was changed. And I want to talk a little about somebody else who had a name that was changed a little. We know that Joshua was brought up in Egypt in slavery, and that he followed Moses out as an adult in, through the sea and into the desert. But he was named as a baby. He was given the name Salvation. Think what it must have felt like to be rocked at night by your mother whispering, Salvation, Salvation. Or 
When he got out of line or spilled something, made a mess or got too far, he was given the reminder, salvation? Perhaps it made him just a little bolder or a little stronger to be called salvation in the face of his oppressors or to be called salvation even by his masters. It would have been a thought in his head daily, salvation, this is what I'm to look for. This is what's to define me, to shape me, salvation. Joshua catches the attention of others. This boy is someone of note, something special. He garners the attention and the favor of the leader of his people. Moses himself renames him. In Numbers 13, when Moses selects a representative from each tribe to go and spy in the promised land to see what it is like, this young man named Salvation was selected. In Numbers 13, 16, it tells us Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. The significance in the two little changed letters is anything but small. Moses took the abbreviated form of Yahweh, dropped the H-O from the beginning of the name and replaced it with J-O. What this did to his name was transform it from meaning salvation to meaning God is salvation. That name change, whether made to prevent Joshua from taking the credit or to reflect how deeply Joshua already understood that it was God and not himself that would bring salvation, would alter the way he would lead and how people would come to follow him. They would not cry, we will follow this man who is salvation. They would instead declare that they were following God to salvation. When you have heard your name spoken and you have brought it under God's authority, it changes everything. I want to suggest that this morning you are in one of three places. First, you may be in a place where you are simply doing what you're supposed to do and you're going with the flow. You're doing the work to glorify God and serve others and that is great. But you don't have an identified or actionable goal, no named ambition, and maybe no super clear sense of who you were created and recreated to be or what that means for you at this moment in time. It's possible you had a dream at one point and you saw God work out his plan in that. But you don't have fresh vision. And I don't talk about that with judgment. When I heard my name, Sarah Kinzer, the writer, I didn't have any work in progress, and I didn't have any idea that what I considered to be a hobby might be who God made me to be and what he made me to do. If you don't have a God-given goal, ambition, or dream, and you are not praying night and day, God, tell me who you made me to be. Give me your ambition for my life. Give me a dream. Give me a vision. Why not? Why are you not praying that? Did God not hand out dreams in the Bible and vision in the Bible like a grandma passing out peppermints? Like, I'm not going to give you a bunch of examples. The correct answer is yes. Yes, he did. When we hear the Bible say, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. It ain't talking about dreams of eating marshmallows with your cat in a hot air balloon. It's talking about... God's absolute and real power to speak clearly about what he is doing and what he wants us to do as a part of it. God created you with a plan and a purpose, and he hands out visions lavishly to those who ask for it. The second place you might find yourself this morning is that you know who God made you to be. You know the passions and the ambitions he put in your heart, but if you honestly evaluate it, you're not really doing anything about it. You might think, I mean, that's something I would do one day, if the opportunity presents itself. And honestly, I kind of worry it's sort of prideful to think I should be the one doing it. It's easy to hear talks of goals and ambitions and shy back a bit, thinking that ambition is synonymous with pride. However, the best way I've heard it put recently is a quote 
by James K.A. Smith. The opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining the ambitious are prideful and arrogant, so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep, get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often the covering for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. If God has made you with a plan and a purpose, if he has a desire for you to live a full and abundant life, carrying out his work for salvation for mankind in this day and age, if he wants to feed the hungry with the fruit off of your tree that he grew on you, and you turn around and say, yeah, but maybe somebody else, or yeah, but maybe I don't have enough for that. That's not humility, it's rude. It's rude to a God who created you well, who did a good job, who gifted you well, and has plans and a purpose for mankind, and has plans and a purpose for you. If you are waiting for an invitation, let me invite you. Do what he has asked you to do. Be who he has made you to be. What is the worst that could happen? It doesn't work out. If you're not doing it now, it's already not working out. Someone might not like you. Okay. Not everybody likes everybody. It's not any different than what you're living with now. You can give me ten reasons why you should not do what God has made you to do, and I will tell you ten reasons why that is not a legitimate excuse. Mm -hmm. The final place you might be this morning is God has spoken your name, and you have brought who you were created to be under his authority, and you are working at what he designed you to do. And that is a nice, nice place. Sarah Kinzer, the writer, keep writing. Right there was my birth name, my new name, and what to do about it. There are a lot of days where the only direction I had was that first direction. Because God didn't say, Sarah Kinzer, the writer, establish a blog, start writing some curriculum, start um, putting things down in letters, journal a bit, uh, do some pre-writing, do what that mouse did, send stuff off, and eventually you'll have written something. No. He said, this is who I created you to be. Act like it. There are going to be days when you are acting like who God made you to be that you don't know what you should be doing. I'm encouraging you. Go back to what he told you to do in the beginning. He told you who you were. He told you what to do. You know who he has made you to be, so act like it. And finally, there is a good chance that some part or a big part or all of what you do will fail. That is great encouragement, isn't it? Like, give me that again, Sarah. Tell me how it's going to fail. I'm being real. If you are living the way Ecclesiastes tells us to live, try stuff, do stuff, stuff will fail. You send your grain out, and it won't come back. The rain's going to fall, and the trees are going to drop, and there they're going to lay. The great news is, so what? So what? If you're standing in front of your tree and it fell down, and you're sitting there going, look at what a failure my tree is. To that I say, the next time you need lumber, you already got the tree down. You're ahead of the game. 
You've already got work going on what the next thing is God has for you to do. Are your limitations and what you say are a failure so big that God can't use them as he sees fit? No. So don't be so prideful that you would allow yourself to dwell in the ways that you think that God messed up making you or working out his plans. Go be what he made you to be and do what he made you to do. I'm going to close out now with another quote by James K.A. Smith. Resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and to launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire my gifts and gratitude caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you are free to fail. We are free to take risks. We are free to write books, to launch church plants, to start ministries, to do weird things like take a second job as a pizza guy, or to walk around cities and find the guys living off in tents on the side of the road that nobody else sees. We are free to coach sports teams and to start food banks. We are free to start practicing things that the rest of the world sees as hobbies at best and wastes of time at the worst. Let me read that last bit of Ecclesiastes one more time. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. My friends, is he God or not? Has he not given you seed to sow with, feet to carry you, and ground to work? Will you sow the seed, use your feet, and work the ground? Or will you tell God, yeah, but? Try stuff. Do stuff. I promise you, it's going to be okay. God, I thank you that you have gathered this group here this morning and that we are going to have the chance to learn together and to grow together. Father, I thank you that we will walk out of today better equipped to do the things that you have us to do and to be the people that you created us to be. I thank you that I look around this room and I see evidence that you are an amazing creator. And I thank you that I am going to get to watch so much of what you plan to do, your work to save, to save the lost in our, in our area. I thank you that I get to be a part of that and get to watch it happen. You've done a good job. Thank you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. That was rich, rich stuff. That's um, good. I don't know why this line jumped out to me. I think God knew I needed it. Playing it safe is not humility. Oh, all right. Yeah. I'm listening, Lord. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, Sarah, for leading us this morning. Well, my friend uh, Todd's going to come, and as he comes, uh, would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5? Now, we're not going to have a live reading of the Sermon on the Mount, although we could. Todd would do that for us, I think. Um, But this is where we're diving in a little bit this morning. And so part of what Todd's going to do is share with us what even prompted this. Um, now, foreword of the book, and I, I read it, I enjoyed reading it, um, kind of points out to this idea that uh, the Sermon on the Mount, there's been a lot of focus and a lot of attention, but grateful that Todd took another swing at it. And so there's some fresh perspective here. Some of you have read this book. There's five of these books sitting around the room. I bought them last teaching church. 
So that's free. So if there's a book like this sitting on the middle of your table, you can arm wrestle for it. And then I've got some others here. Todd's not here to sell a book. That's not, he's not here on a book tour, and uh, we could line that up later. He's really here because I just asked him to share his heart. But if today you think you could benefit from journeying through this, I know you could, but we have some up here, and you can talk to Todd later about um, for three easy payments of whatever. Um, he could take these home. Uh, but with that said, uh, I'm going to turn over to him. I will come back up at the end. I want to ask you a few questions and thoughts. Uh, but for now, uh, let's give our attention. Well, I was thinking about something that happened at my church uh, several years ago. While I was preaching, I noticed a little boy to my left about three rows back. He was four or five years old. And he was doing what four or five-year-old little boys do during church. He was down on the floor drawing dinosaurs or playing with matchbox cars or something. Um, didn't think he was paying me any mind until I made one big statement. You know, that sentence, just, whatever he was doing, he stopped, he stood up, turned around, looked right at me and said, that didn't make a bit of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and then went right back to doing whatever it was he was doing. I hope today doesn't end up like that. That uh, somewhere along the way somebody says, wait a minute, Pastor, that doesn't make a bit of sense. Uh, Pastor Adrian, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your support. And uh, thanks everybody else for being here. It was about five years ago, about this time of year, that I was doing sermon planning for the latter half of 2015. And I felt impressed to come into the Sermon on the Mount with the sermon planning. So we begin to do that, and uh, allowing for some designated Sundays, for some Sundays off, it ended up taking up uh, the better part of a year's worth of preaching. In the process, as I did some historical and cultural and linguistic and biblical research, uh, the power of this Sermon on the Mount became just transformative to me. Uh, th these words of Jesus are dramatic. They're revolutionary. Uh, the teaching presents to us a combination of things that are impossible and terrifying and fascinating and glorious all at once as we read through them. There were occasions during that year that my heart would say, I want to. There were times when my heart would say, I will. There were times when I just cried and said, I can't. There was a time or two whenever I would push back from the desk and just say, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> wow. You know, but during all that process, there was some fog that needed to clear. Fog from previous misconceptions. Fog from some misplaced tradition that had been put in. And as that did, there was one overwhelming application. And that is Jesus is teaching us that people within his kingdom must be different. Not just different by a shade or two, but really, really different. Not just different in a place of private practice. Not just different in religious ritual. But those who are living within God's kingdom are supposed to be living with a marked difference. Um, an undeniable difference, a difference that's not possible. And the word contrast came to mind as the one word that would define that, a life that is at contrast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronted several norms of his day, norms which still exist in some fashion in our own day, 
when the cultural norm treated marriage with carelessness or crassness, which is not new to our time, you know, it's been a long time, Jesus responded to that cultural norm by saying, now just a moment, for those who are living within the kingdom of God, marriage is a sacred covenant. And he dealt with that. Whenever the religious norm would begin to speak about generosity and say, oh, well, do a public thing. You know, that'll encourage others to give. And again, that's not just restricted to his day. It's in our day, too. Jesus made a startling statement. He said, wait, wait. Your generosity is to be intensely private, so private that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. I thought, well, if that is the case, I won't be able to do any self-applause. Because it takes cooperation between the two hands to make that happen, right? Right. This is supposed to be intensely private. So it's confronting even the religious norm in that regard. Whenever human nature, right, wants to rise up against somebody who's turned against us. They've poked you in the eye, so now you're going to break their arm. Don't mess with me. They've cussed you out in traffic. So you respond in some kind. Jesus is like, wait a minute. That's, no, no. You live in the kingdom of God. Right. What's to happen now is when somebody cusses you out, pronounce a blessing. And I, this is one of those moments where it's like, yeah, you've got to be kidding me. That's wrong. That's just wrong to take a blessing of God, this sacred holy thing, and give it to some vile person that just cussed me out. But this is what Jesus is saying. Contrast. Oh, wow. I I can't think of another word that would really fit. Nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus call you and I to live a life of comfort. We hope, we wish it were true. We don't mind skipping over that and going to other places and trying to find that comfort, but he didn't call us to comfort. Nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus call us to a life of compromise. He he certainly didn't call us into a life of camouflage where we can just kind of blend in and not create any disturbances. Wow. A year's worth of journey in studying and seeing and hearing and feeling these teachings of Jesus calling my own heart to begin to be expressed as a life of contrast. Well, when I finished with the preaching series, it was kind of, you know, got through that. And a little nagging thought that maybe it should be a book. That's never been my name, Sarah. You know, I, I, when I was in second grade, I, I didn't get that book. Of course, all pastors think that they've got something to say, so I'm like, so I talked to a few close friends. They affirmed the idea, so I thought, well, okay. So, so I began, and it was another year or so process. Two things happened during all of this. Trying to take notes that were prepared for public speaking and transition those to notes prepared for private reading was an arduous task. Wow. Language changes and all of this that had to go where I just, the learning curve for me was about like that, almost straight up. Uh, write, edit, rewrite, edit, rewrite, about four or five cycles. I will say, if you pursue that path and you use a professional editor, he will destroy your ego. <laughs> just saying. Wow, it was exhausting. The other thing that happened I didn't, I didn't expect. 
Now, early in the preaching series, you know, some spiritual warfare going on. Those of us who preach and teach and give ourselves to speaking ministry understand that happens. So I wasn't startled by the fact it was happening during the preaching series. But as it moved from the preaching to the writing, it amped up dramatically. Uh, the oppression was relentless and it was overwhelming. Every single day. All day long, for almost two years, just this pounding oppression. Where at its worst, all I could do was shake and cry and beg God for mercy. I despaired of my sanity a few times. I despaired of my life a few times. I wasn't even sure I was going to survive this thing. Now, before you think, well, Pastor, how did you survive? Did you did you knuckle down on your spiritual disciplines? <laughs> No, if you've been in that place, you find out that's not how it works. I'm just here to tell you that God never let me go. Amen. That's the whole answer. God never let me go. And I'm, I'm grateful. So, that just gives you a short snippet of that journey that lasted for three or four years. And Pastor Adrian, I think, is ready to maybe grill me a little or whatever, wherever this is going to go from here. So, Pastor Adrian? Yeah. Uh, I have a couple questions. Um, when I asked Todd to do this, he kind of was like, well, how do you, you know, do you want me to just get there and talk for an hour? And I said, well, let's let's just talk together. So, one question I had, I, I read the book. I went through the book. I enjoyed it a lot. But I wondered for you... There's a lot of hard truths in the Sermon on the Mount. There's at least a few places when I'm reading I'd like to kind of skip ahead a little bit or at least see if the message paraphrase makes it easier to, you know, stomach. What for, for you, as you preached it first and then wrote it, what's the most transformational for you personally? Not even talking about your congregation, not talking about as you wrote it, you thought, man, I hope this really, I mean, for you in your life, what was the most transformational truth that you found in the Sermon on the Mount? I had a, a two-part answer. Sure, yeah. please. Uh, first, it would have been coming to a better understanding of the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been engaged with the church for 50 years. And uh, throughout the course of that time, I've heard a variety of preaching and teaching and did some of my own uh, on the Beatitudes and never really found a good place to stand. The Beatitudes were often presented as a path to some kind of spiritualized happiness. It didn't help that some versions or paraphrases of Scripture actually did that. Happy, happy. I thought, well, that doesn't, that, that doesn't know. I'm supposed to be happy when I'm in deep mourning or happy when somebody's misusing, abusing, persecuting this? No. Psychology? No. And I couldn't find a good place to stay. Until doing research uh, for this preaching series, and said, well, you know, Jesus is presenting his teaching under the umbrella of ancient Judaism, not now. So I shouldn't take the feelings of now and transfer them back to then. I should go further back and come forward. So in doing that, I came to a better understanding what it means to be involved in a blessing or to be blessed. And just briefly, it's blessing and being blessed by a patriarch, a prophet, or a king was meant to strengthen the bind between people and God in relational covenant. Not about being happy, but being invested in God and His purpose. Now all of a sudden, Beatitudes are starting to clear up for me and I'm finding a place to stay. And no matter what's going on in my life, and a lot of Beatitudes are kind of on the negative side of things, right? God's at work 
through those things, he is strengthening the binding between he and I in relational covenant. Now I have a place to stand. If I'm going through something that causes mourning, God is there. He's using this to increase the relational covenant between us. Paul affirms that later when he says, well, we know that God takes all things, works them together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. And the Beatitudes kind of express that. The second thing was what Jesus had to say about the law. When he said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to bring it to completion. We tend to take the law and subdivide it. We say there's moral law and there's civil law and there's sacrificial law. And to the ancient Jews, they didn't subdivide it. It's just the law. One single unit, the law. And Jesus said, I came to bring all of that to completion. Another writer said it was like the Old Testament law was a vehicle that found its destination in Jesus. So he, he brought it all to completion. Now, we part it out so that we can get rid of parts and keep parts. But Jesus said, I satisfied all of it. Right. All, all of it. Mm-hmm. Brought it all to its completion. And now my command to you is to love like I've loved. And the New Testament then affirms that. That if we love, it is enough. If we love, it satisfies everything. And so, maybe came close to pushback from the congregation on that one when make a statement like, well, I really don't need a granite monument of the Ten Commandments in my lawn and Jesus. I just need Jesus. Because if I'm living in Him, I'm satisfying all of God's requirements. Yeah. There's freedom in that. There is. Yeah. So those two two things... Yeah, had a profound effect. So um, I'm going to be honest. Listening to you makes me never want to write a book because of seeing what you went through. So thanks for that. Um, but what I love, though, I love because I, I I've been trying to read more. Uh, I'm not the world's most avid reader, but anybody could write a book, and anybody I'm not downplaying writing a book. I'm just saying anybody could pray and research and write a book. But what I love is you you wrote this book out of a journey in community. You wrote this out of kind of the fruit of wrestling in community with us. So tell me now, not just about your journey personally, tell me what was most transformative. Tell me some little pieces of, of fruit that you saw being produced in your people as you went through this. Now, that's a, that's a whole year, so that's a lot. But give us a glimpse, give us a snapshot, give us a moment or two where you began to see hard truth, you know, this life in contrast take root and then you start to see some fruit really produced as people um, didn't say, this is what we want the word to mean. This is what it really means. Wow. Um, I think one, maybe, was uh, in regards to the law that we just talked about is uh, people begin to realize that the freedom that is living in Jesus and that that is enough. I think something that was very challenging to a few was... Jesus decided nonviolent approach to being a life in contrast. Uh, not to pacifist necessarily, but to decidedly nonviolent. And that way when you are personally insulted, even personally injured as part of the insult, don't respond in kind. You know, and, and so while we're working through that, I know there's people in the congregation who have CC license and all these kinds of things. So this is this is challenging yeah. Yeah. to embrace that yeah. and know where uh, to go with that. Uh, dealing with what we often call the Lord's Prayer there, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think was very strategic mm-hmm. on Jesus' teaching. And following that model and coming to understand more deeply 
uh, what he is saying and the connection through that prayer he's making with their history of Exodus and all of that, uh, I, I think had a, a profound effect upon our thinking about prayer. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So, it's rich. It's deep. Tell us a little bit about the most, con- I mean, you've gotten some of this, so, but um, most controversial part um, of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I mean by that is you began today by saying a life of a disciple of Jesus, somebody following after Jesus, is radically different than, I'm not putting words in your mouth now, but you kind of started with that premise of like, man, to live this way is counter to the culture of our, of our world today. So tell us in your mind, what was the most controversial point on the Sermon of the Mount? Where did you experience the most pushback? Maybe even personally, as you're preparing it, and you're like, ooh, can I really say this? Again, you've kind of alluded to this. Or, I mean, from your people. I mean, it was like, you got off the stage, and they're meeting you there. You're like, wait a second, what about, you know? So tell us a little bit more about your journey through the weeds. Anybody want to guess what part of the Sermon Mount that would have been? That's a fun guess. Let's see. <laughs> now, I didn't get much confrontation. From the people within my congregation. I have a guess, but I don't know if it'll be right. Well, divorce? Yeah. I think that would probably be the one. Yeah. Um, You know, we we tend to do a lot of cultural defining, personal experience defining. We bring those kinds of things as lenses through which we look at Scripture. And when Jesus came into that, he just was, here it is. Yeah. And there you go. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't make a lot of allowance for it to be tweaked by historical time or geographical locations right. or family history. He just said, here it is. Yeah. And uh, then you, you launch from there into the rest of what Apostle Paul had to say and others. And it's like, this really didn't land where I wanted it to go, <laughs> yeah. where I wanted it to land. This, well, this, Wow. And so I think that would probably be, for those of you who've looked through the book or read the book, you might would say, yeah, that that particular chapter was the most teeth-gritting thing to, to deal with. And it's not that Jesus is harsh on the issue. He's just saying when you're in the kingdom, this is how marriage is to be seen. Uh, and so probably... Yeah, probably the most controversial, most difficult to deliver maybe because you're talking to people who've been affected by this issue uh, in a variety of ways. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you put velvet around the hammer and try to present the truth, of, you know, still with clarity but not with harshness. I have a couple, um, I have two little passages I want to read and ask you to respond to because they stood out to me. But before I do that, um, we are living in a post-Christian world for the first time uh, in America we're living in a culture in a day where um, I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit Sunday. That the number one religious group right now in America is those that have no religious affiliation, and so this is the first. This is new for us in America, journeying through this. And so, talk to me about preaching the Sermon on the Mount not to a group of pastors and leaders, not to a group of people that have grown up reading, and that's a challenge in and of itself because there's familiarity. Talk to me about preaching teaching, sharing this book, A Life in Contrast, with someone that comes with no past Christian experience, no heritage, no understanding of Jesus and this kingdom at all. Tell me kind of what that looks like in your mind. Well, I, it's a great question, and I, I think I have an answer. Sure. I think. 
I'm the pizza guy that Sarah alluded to a while ago. I, I'm assuming that anyway. I don't think there's uh, a lot of other pizza guys here. <laughs> I've been the pizza delivery guy. I had my seventh anniversary a few days ago. I, I'm the longest tenured employee at that particular Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> they give you a watch? No, no watch. You're in that time. Oh, boy. But uh, what, what is interesting is some of those kids want this. Yeah. And... Some of them said, "Don't give, I won't let you give it to me, and, but I'll, I'll pay you for it. And then it'd be laying on the desk where the manager had his copy there to read, and one of the employees came out and said, Hey, where's mine? And um, I think what, I, what I've discovered in that small context, one is people carry a lot of confusion and pain. Wow. People have been desperately hurt and confused by the church. But I haven't met not a single one of those kids that didn't like Jesus. Now, they may have had some confused ideas about it. Sure. But none of them. Now, some of them would say, I'll never go back to the church. This church, that church, this preacher, that person. But none of them have said to me, I don't like Jesus. Yeah. So... Coming into those conversations, don't come through the door of the Church of the Nazarene, though I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. That's not the door I come through to them or invite them to come to through to me. Right. Just come to them with Jesus. Right. And even for the nuns, you'll find that the case. They've, they've left church behind, right. but they're still kind of okay with Jesus, even yeah. if they have some confused ideas about it. Yeah. So having these kinds of conversations with them... And I've been able to do that a time or two. Yeah. Whenever some cultural issue, life issue comes up, bring the teachings of Jesus into the conversation as that. Yeah. Not as what my church believes, but Jesus, you know, he, he right. dealt with an issue like that too. Right. And here's what he had to say, right? And I have yet to have one of them go, well, that doesn't make, like the little boy, that didn't make a bit of sense. Yeah. I, haven't had, I haven't had any of that. Yeah, yeah. I've had them squint. Hmm. Like like the issue of marriage. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of moral confusion among those employees at Domino's. And sometimes in those conversations, I, I've been able to say, well, I've been married to the same woman for over 35 years. Mm-hmm. And the kids will look and they go, wow, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, you can have it. Right, right. And somehow bring in yeah. teaching of Jesus about the sacredness of that. And yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's so ah, even yeah. for the nuns, if you if you put it in that kind of context and you you live kindly and lovingly in front of them, with them, engaging with them, yeah. kind of keep church out, bring Jesus in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one young man who had left the church, we worked together for quite some time that he left um, we ran the, into each other at a later time and he was talking about what was going on in his life at that point I said well it sounds like some of the old stuff is resurrecting a little and he grinned he said well yeah I might get back in religion and I said well please don't do that <laughs> what you need to do is come back into Jesus and he, he grinned because he knew what what I intended by that statement, so I suppose maybe that's kind of an answer that you know we're in a, we're in a place where we we have you know there'll be some kids come through dominoes that have no Christian memory, right? Wow, we've never been there. Yeah, 
but it gives us a kind of a clean slate of right. talking to them about yeah. Jesus, sure. right? Absolutely. And his teachings. Yeah. In some ways, the, the challenge for the Sermon on the Mount isn't always the, the post-Christian. Sometimes the challenge for the Sermon on the Mount is those of us that have called ourselves Christians for so long. But now we have to really look at what Jesus says and says, does this line up with how I'm living? Two passages, and then we'll close. I'm going to ask you to, I think you're going to pick a, a small passage to read for us. I, I don't know if this is just where I was the day I read it, but um, it's really short. But I'm just going to read it, and you can respond. You can just respond by saying, yeah, I read that. That was good. Um, <laughs> or you can, you can share some other thought. But on the topic of mercy, okay, so again, this is, if you're not familiar with the book, um, it's got like 50,000 chapters. Not really. It's got um, 36. So he really breaks apart the Sermon on the Mount in little. So the Beatitudes, I mean, he's really, and so on the Beatitude of mercy, um, being merciful. And so just these two short statements, um, or not even full paragraphs that I, I highlighted. The question, um, you began with the question, worthy of mercy. What an absurdity. Mercy is only mercy when it is unearned when the recipient is unworthy. It says, consider carefully, anytime we collaborate compassion, anytime we measure mercy, at that moment we are living outside of the kingdom of Christ. Now, that's powerful to me. And you could just say, yeah, that is. Um, but, but tell me a little bit about your journey. I mean, that's good stuff. Thanks for writing it and sharing it. But tell me a little bit more about your journey through that as you wrestled with I mean, Jesus' truth and the beatitude of what it means that, that the merciful will be the ones that are blessed because they show mercy. Right. Tell me a little bit more about what that meant uh, to you as you <clears throat> journeyed through it. Long history. You know, when I was just a boy growing up in a very conservative uh, a network, we, we grew to use this phrase. I mean, we kind of said, well... I love that person, but only enough to get to heaven. Like we knew where that we knew where that threshold was. <laughs> I, I, as a as a kid, I watched when somebody would have some type of failing, and others would ostracize them, push them out, and justify that by saying they need to just know how badly they've behaved. So that's what we're doing. And oh. But then came into this teaching of Jesus about mercy. Not a commodity we give, it is who we are. Right. And we really can't measure it out. We can't say, well, let's see. Ah, you kind of crossed the line too far there. I can't. It's just not so. Yeah. Beautiful. Last one, and then uh, I will take a moment if anybody else, I mean, you can ask him any question you want. Um, he wrote the book on it, so. Um, this one is toward the end, and you talk about worry. And we just, as a church, went through a series to start the year on fear and anxiety. So as I read this, these words are really poignant to me. Um, but I like your perspective. Um, you talk about, you begin sharing the scripture in verses 25 to 34 on worry, but then you begin by saying this. The devil perverts good and necessary things by appealing to our selfishness, suggesting uncertainty and fear. He blinds us with the false glamour of earthly treasures. If our real enemy can get us to see only what we can touch, look at, and own, then he has created the potential for worry. And I'm going to tell you that yesterday, I mean, today, whatever, I was dealing with worry, you know, so it's not, this is a real thing that I think many of us can relate to. And as you were talking about 
um, and just describing, and you go on to say it a lot, a lot more in a lot of other ways, um, but just that idea of worry as being um, what the enemy does is he kind of blinds us to only what we can see. And if he can get us to see only what we can touch, look at, and own, he's created for us the potential of worry. So just tell me a little bit more about that journey of worry um, as you went through the Sermon on the Mount. Just recently, our house got just devastated by water damage, stuff we can touch and own, mm-hmm. right? It would have been easy to just got all upside down and worrisome about it. Thank the Lord didn't have to walk down that path. Uh, but I, I think it's true. We're, we're so object-oriented, you know, and little indulgent, little selfish, and all of that creates fertile soil for the devil to begin to say, but what if, what if, what if? Uh, where through the Sermon on the Mount, through this, this, uh, this teaching on worry, Jesus just clarifies that the Father will take care of you. The necessities, the things that you truly need, right. He will give you. Right. Yeah. There you go. You're 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 in His kingdom, yeah. and He'll do a good job taking care of the citizens within His kingdom. Doesn't promise that there'll be no sense of loss. Right. That there'll be no sense that you didn't achieve or accomplish or gain. It just said you, you'll be taken care of. So don't just don't worry about. Just don't the, the idea of trusting. Yeah. Trusting. Yeah. Trusting. I don't know why we are surprised by that. Uh, trusting. You know, early in ministry, uh, Carol and I just got started out and had a couple of little youngins and didn't make any money at all. Just, you know how it is. And um, we absolutely couldn't, you know, go buy new clothes for the kids, tires for the car. I, it, was, it was not even possible to, to think on. Those teachings became very real in those moments when the kids needed clothes without fail. There'd be a big black garbage bag of clothes on the porch, just what was needed over, over, over again. Why I forgot about that later, I don't know. But coming back into this teaching, it's like, well, you know what? That's exactly right. You know, we didn't have anything then. But God took care of us over and over, tires and work boots and clothes for the kids and groceries for the refrigerator. When we had no resource personally, he did and saw to it over and over. Uh, Wow. And then coming back into that, the father just said, well, now you're in a place where those aspects are handled differently now, but I'm still the same father that provides in the same way. I'll take care of it. It's a trust. Um, I have a closing question. Before I do that, I mean, this was your chance. So he literally wrote the book on the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So um, I'm just kidding. Tongue in cheek a little bit. But uh, what questions? Do you have anything you'd like to ask Todd about this process, about what he learned? He won't make up an answer if he doesn't have it. Um, maybe you've gotten to read some of the book and you have a, a question or two. Uh, maybe there's something in general. Maybe you're preaching on the Sermon on the Mount this Sunday and you could really use a, a tip or advice on a chapter or verse. Uh, before we close, any questions from you guys? I don't have a question, but I do have a comment. I've read a lot of those years, and the comments that you have given to us on the Sermon on the Mount are some of the richest. Yeah, quite good. 
challenging parts. One would be Jesus coming to complete the law and coming to a deeper understanding of that. Because uh, that kind of eliminates the check the box thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, then uh, maybe secondarily to that, uh, Jesus teaching on how we are to respond when somebody gives us tremendous insult, even even sometimes when that insult is presented in a physical way, you know, the slapping and his teaching in that regard, and how contrary that is to our natural way. And so those those two probably. Well, Todd looks a lot like Jesus to me, um, just the way that you you are, the way you live your life, and. Thank you for writing this. There's no doubt when you talk about spiritual warfare that there's a reason the enemy didn't want you to share this stuff. So be encouraged today. Um, thanks for sharing. Again, he's not here to promote a book. He didn't ask me. I, I volunteered. I said, I'll buy a few books. Can we make them available so you can talk to him after? But I did ask uh, that he would close by just picking a section, not a whole chapter, just a couple of pages. Uh, I think it's cool to hear it um, in his words as he wrote it. And then would you just say a prayer and a blessing over us, kind of uh, after you read, uh, for our hearts and wherever uh, these words find us today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Among the ancient cultures, the heart represented the totality of the person. The heart was considered the center from which all life sprang. The heart was never considered as separated or disconnected from the hands, feet, mouth, ears, emotions, intentions, motives. 
All of life was connected to and found its source in the heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In our foolish delusions, we separate our heart from the rest of life. We watch as someone behaves badly and responds by saying, but they have a good heart. When someone is living in the confusion of sin and attempting to make a decision, we offer this advice. Just follow your heart, as though that's not what is already happening. The principles of the kingdom make it clear. We cannot separate our words, attitude, actions from our heart. Every day, with every word, attitude, and action, our heart is on display. We prefer to treat our heart as some separate and mystical entity, clean it up, then put it on some righteous trophy case. And we live in that tension. We feel the guilt, and rightly so, of behaving in a way that is in contrast with kingdom principles and yet claim to have a good heart, a sanctified heart. Rather than yielding to the voice calling to us, we redefine or redirect our choices. We hone and refine our skills at avoidance techniques. In so doing, we reveal our allegiance to the kingdom of this world. We prefer an outside-in approach. Many years ago, while pastoring in the small town of West Blockton, Alabama, our family was blessed to be able to take a nice vacation. We made our plans, packed our bags, jumped in the van for a week-long getaway. As we backed out of our driveway, our refrigerator freezer stopped working. Words failed to describe the vile cloud that exhaled from that appliance a week later. (laughs) I am a capable person. I've learned to do a number of things around the house, including minor appliance repair. I was not intimidated by this fridge. I immediately filled a bucket with hot soapy water and grabbed a rag. After working diligently, I stepped back and took a look. The refrigerator was squeaky clean. Then I opened the door. (laughs) Next, I moved the unit outside and positioned it over a tarp. I went to the shed, got out my compressor and paint gun. The local hardware store provided the necessary appliance paint. And a few hours later, that appliance looked like new. Then I opened the door. Not willing to admit defeat, I decided the fridge needed a new location. Maybe the other appliances were preventing it from recovering. (laughs) I moved it to another room, even making it the centerpiece of that room. Did not help. By now you've decided I'm the one who needs the help. But haven't we all handled life with an outside-in approach? We indulge in retail therapy in hopes that a new wardrobe will make us a new person. We change our style in search of a new me. We join the local gym in the hope of shedding a few pounds and being lifted to a new life. We decide to hang out with a better class of friends. Some of us even decide to find a cooler church. Then grace interrupts and opens the door to our inner life. From the Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Lord Jesus, we are grateful today for your goodness. We are grateful for the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the time. There are moments, Lord, when we kind of wish you just left some things well enough alone. (laughs) But you didn't. Your heart beats for your people. And that your people be that. Be your people. 
Do you know this is the best for the glory of God and the fulfillment of His purposes? You know that it's best for us. Forgive our resistance. Thank you for your patience. Help us, Lord, to continue to look into your teaching and let that teaching challenge us. Move us beyond challenge. Mm. Being cleansed by your word. So that we can Mm -hmm. be those individuals living a life that is at contrast. Don't let us take that and twist it into this life that is constantly in frustrating confrontation with everybody and everything. But help Mm -hmm. us to live it well. So that it becomes something of appeal to those we encounter. That your kingdom might be advanced through us to your glory alone. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be honest, I'm an audible um, user, and I could I could uh, really enjoy hearing Todd read that book yeah. in my earbuds. <laughs> so uh, I know what you went through to just write the book. I can't imagine asking you to go through that again uh, to record it, but that was good. Thanks. And so he did send this. He says, uh, tell the teaching church... I miss being there with them. Cheryl and I are on the way today to four days of conference with Nazarene General and District Superintendents from North America. Pray for fires of revival and renewal for our church. So um, we're going to spend a moment. We I just I always think it's valuable when we do this that we spend some time praying for our leadership, and um, we are we want to be we are under authority, and so we want to make sure. That Dr. Phil knows that we're lifting them in prayer, and so we do that often, I hope. But I think this is kind of a built-in time for us to do that as a family. So we'll do that, and then also, um, he did just want me to remind you to be praying specifically. Um, there's a lot happening in our district coming up, but he said specifically be praying over the uh, Assembly and Missions Convention, June 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Salem Fields as we gather. So I, I know that we have team retreat coming up that some of us learn will be at. That'll become another gathering of the family. But um, Dr. Phil specifically asked today that we'll pray um, over our district assembly missions convention coming up. So uh, let's pray. I'm going to ask a couple to pray. Uh, first, I'm just going to ask, um, is Pastor Bud in the room? He is. I'm going to ask Pastor Bud to just stand right where he is and just lift up Dr. Phil and Cheryl today as they're traveling and the load that they carry on our behalf and the needs they have that maybe no one else would know about. And let's just pray that God would encourage their hearts. So, uh, Pastor Bob, would you just lead us in a prayer for our leader today? Thank you. Teach us how to pray, Lord. Teach us how to get in step with your spirit so that we're not only praying the things that are on our hearts, but teach us, Lord, how to pray the things that are on your heart. We don't necessarily know how to pray. It's not something that when we decided to follow Jesus, we knew how to pray. We're we're learning, we're growing in our understanding of prayer. So I want to pray for Dr. Phil today. I can only imagine, Lord, that there are moments when he feels absolutely overwhelmed. I I can't even begin to get my mind around everything that is on his plate, that is in his life, that is in his responsibility. 
list. I mean, it, I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it. Lord, what I'm praying for is like something unusual, a movement of your spirit in his life that's just extraordinary and unusual and unforeseen. Lord, the wind of your spirit's pretty unpredictable. And so, Lord, I can't begin for one moment to predict what it is he's going to be facing. But one thing I know about the future, Lord, is that you're already there. So, Lord, whatever Phil is facing in these days, whether personal or professional, I just pray that you will provide for all of his needs. And that right now, no matter where he is, he will feel the warmth of your tender embrace for him. May he know deep down in his spirit that he's a child of God. And this is the stuff you're doing, and you're inviting us to join you. So, thank you, Lord, for being so patient with us as we fumble through a prayer like this. So, Lord, teach us not only to pray, but teach us to pray well. In Jesus' name. That's Pastor Sam uh, Stan. The one thing Dr. Phil asked us specifically to pray for is over our district assembly and missions gathering June 1st, 2nd, 3rd. So, Pastor Sam, I know you've been, as a DAB member, you've been in a lot of those conversations and preparation. But why don't you just lead us uh, in prayer over our district family as we prepare to gather in the coming months. And whatever else the Lord would place on your heart for our district today. Father, we uh, are grateful that you have allowed us to be part of growing your kingdom here. I don't think any of us here would have chosen that of our own desire for the good. process we have responded to you in obedience and we strive to uh, each day to fulfill that and with your spirit in our hearts and in our minds we seek to be fruitful Lord as I think of this year's district assembly and conventions plans that have been set in place so we perceive that uh, you want to do something great in us you want to do something uh, powerful uh, through us you want to do something for us as individuals as as individual people and to that end Lord the plans have been set in in motion Uh, there have been some 
challenges and some other things, but we trust you and believe that uh, everything will come together. I pray, Lord, that there would be a spirit of unity within our district. I pray that there would be a sense of, of expectation mm-hmm. uh, and a sense of anticipation uh, of the things that that you have in store for us. I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would move freely among us doing amazing work in our hearts, increasing the passion that you have placed upon our hearts when you first called us. Uh, May it be fresh and new for this new season and uh, in our lives. Lord, uh, I just want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for uh, Sarah. I want to thank you for Todd. Uh, I thank you for the journey that you have brought them and the words that they've shared today. For some, uh, they were challenging. I have to say for me, uh, some uh, some of the words were convicting. Some of the words and comments were affirming. Uh, and Lord, you work that way. Uh, you have something for, for all of us. So I pray that uh, as we conclude today, whenever that is, that we would come away refreshed and renewed and that we would come away knowing that love us and have our best interest in Thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So be it. Well, we're going to spend our last hour uh, diving deep. I'm going to ask Cameron to come on up and um, I'm going to have him introduce himself. I... Remember, at last year's district assembly, um, I don't know that I personally got to meet Cameron yet, but I remember once or twice during the assembly some of the challenges his dad was going through, which he can share that if he wants to later. But we, as a district family, kind of gather out and prayed. And as we're praying, one particular time I was seated right near him, I thought, I need to get to know Cameron. And um, he ministers in a context that's, that's a little different than mine. In um, Roanoke, and I know a little bit about that community because my dad used to be on staff there. But um, I asked him to come and really share his heart as he's learned to minister within that community and within some of the unique opportunities God has given him in, in that city, in that town, in that community. So excited for you to share, and um, thanks. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Adrian, thank you. Um, yeah, just you know, an update. I may not know a lot of you, um, but uh, you probably did see we did have a time of prayer together at assembly, and um, you know, my parents posted an update recently. My dad has been 
battling with uh, stage 3 Merkel cell carcinoma is what it's called. And it's a form of skin cancer that rapidly moves to lymph nodes and then on to major organs from there. And uh, it's a very dangerous, very rare, very quickly moving uh, form of cancer. My dad's a district superintendent in upstate New York um, and uh, he's been a Nazarene pastor for forever. And uh, uh, it was my life growing up as a, a PK, as I'm sure some of you also share a similar story. And I've uh, been really overwhelmed by just the outpouring of love and support from our district um, and from all the people that know my family. And so I thank you for your prayers. Um, things haven't been going particularly well with all of that recently. That recently got some bad uh, news, some bad reports. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, the medication that he was on, the, the, the treatment plan that they were on, uh, really hadn't been... Uh, doing much of anything to slow uh, the cancer. And uh, so he starts uh, this week um, after he's down in Florida going to these meetings that Dr. Phil's going to as well. And I'm like, Dad, you don't need to be doing all that. Just stay home and relax. But you know how stubborn people, men can be sometimes, ladies. Um, anyway, uh, you know, he wanted to keep doing the things that he, that he loves to do that, that the Lord has called him to. So Anyway, he starts later this week uh, treatment in Boston, uh, radiation treatment for the next month, uh, and uh, to try and um, shrink and uh, remove some of the tumors that have grown here in the last few months. So, anyway, we know uh, that regardless of the outcome, the Lord is on the throne, and uh, that to God be the glory um, for miraculous healing and uh, for miraculous forgiveness and grace and love and mercy. And uh, regardless of the outcome here on this side of eternity, we know this is just the beginning. And uh, I know the many, many people who call the Lord their Savior because my dad was faithful and my mom has been faithful to the call. And so regardless of what happens from here, the Lord is on the throne. So we appreciate your prayers. We covet your prayers. And uh, particularly um, continue to pray just for their spirits during this time, too. A lot of people are praying for healing. Keep praying for healing. Pray for their spirits, too. Anyway, like I said, my dad is a, is a pastor. I grew up uh, in the, the Nazarene church as a PK, and um, we, in particular, were in northern Indiana in some small towns, uh, rural areas, um, you know, largest profession in the churches were uh, farmers and, and teachers, you know, uh, and that was kind of reflected the communities that we lived in. That's what the, the neighborhoods uh, I'm sorry, the communities were, um, and uh, that's just the reality of where I lived. Very vanilla, kind of, you know, when you think of small-town America, that's what we were. Um, that's where I grew up, where I'm from, uh, and we moved a couple of times when I was young, and we just moved to another small town that was just like the one we just moved from. Um, so nothing had really changed, but, you know, when I was at all of that, um, pursuing um, ministry, education for ministry, uh, the Lord just started to put in my heart a passion for the city, and I never really understood where and how that would come into effect. Uh, as you shared earlier, brother, you know, it's kind of like the Lord's calling you. Where is that going to be? Well, I'll find out when he leads me there, right? Um, and uh, so that's kind of been, that was kind of my story at that point in my life. And after graduating, I had met someone there at, at Olivet whose uh, father is uh, Jay Height, who's the director for Shepherd Community Center, which is in Indianapolis. It's a inner city outreach, Nazarene Compassionate Ministry Center, largely focused on education, um, but does a, a million other things too. And uh, if you haven't met Jay Height or heard much about Shepherd Community Center, if you're at General Assembly or any other major event, they'll usually have a booth there. 
um, I would encourage you to go and learn some more. It's really encouraging, uh, you know, to hear and see what's going on there and what they're doing, and uh, just see that kind of success in, in that kind of a neighborhood is really, really impressive. But anyway, I started out there and uh, was there for a couple of years, just as an associate pastor, and worked for the community center side of things, uh, doing a number of different jobs. And uh, really, you know, was feeling called to be in a more pastoral role uh, than what I was doing there at Shepherd. And the Lord led me to what I thought was something that I'd be more comfortable with uh, as far as my own uh, experience had been. Like I said, I grew up in small towns and, and uh, really big churches in small towns. We were always the biggest church in whatever town we were in. That's just kind of how it was when I was growing up. And uh, I thought that's what I was moving to when I accepted a youth ministry position at Indianapolis First Church of the Nazarene. And, uh, you know, it was kind of the you know, the big church on the district. They've got everything going on, that kind of church. And, and I thought that's what I was stepping into. But the church was located in a low-income neighborhood um, there in Indianapolis. The congregation didn't really reflect much of uh, what the neighborhood around looked like. Um, but what I found in youth ministry is that my youth group really did. Uh, we were reaching lost people, and for us, that meant the, na- the teens who lived right there in our neighborhood. And so, when I, you know, when I thought I was making a move into something I was more comfortable with, uh, really, the Lord was just continuing on in this journey of, of a heart and passion for the city that He had put in me um, and uh, neighborhoods there. So, I was there for a while and um, started to feel the call to preach more regularly. I started doing that at Indianapolis first, and that really led to um, coming here to Roanoke first and uh, taking on the position of, uh, of the pastor there at Roanoke first. If you don't know much about Roanoke, um, join the club. Um, I didn't know. It, I thought it had disappeared back in the colony days. And then all of a sudden I was being called to pastor there. I thought, what, what did I do wrong to get called to a place that doesn't exist? Um, and uh, But anyway, I... I uh, started looking around and doing some research and Dr. Phil was telling me about you know the church and the city and, and all of that and I, I thought man this sounds exactly like what God has been doing um, using me for you know small town kid uh, coming into the city and pastoring in diverse neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods in the city I don't know why it's some kind of joke that God likes to play he's the least equipped person to do um, to do the things that he calls us to do I've been teaching out of Judges chapter 6 um, at our, our Bible study on Wednesday nights. And in particular, last night we talked about uh, Gideon. And the Lord says, Gideon, you're the mighty warrior. I'm going to have you go do this and defeat the Midians and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Gideon says, well, I'm from the smallest family in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest one in my family. <laughs> Anybody ever feel like that? <laughs> uh, and the uh, Lord said, uh, am I not sending you? I mean, Go. Dude, go, right? I mean, who's sending you, right? Uh, be like if you're playing two-on-two basketball and LeBron James is on your team. It doesn't matter how bad you are at basketball. He's pretty good, right? Um, and, and that's the reality, right? The Lord was calling and sending, and so uh, we came here to Roanoke. Um, the city itself is really a, a cool city, um, and uh, I'll share more details with you uh, as we go in, in the context of our neighborhood. Um but for me, uh, just here at the beginning to tell you, um, you know, it's it's in a, a low-income neighborhood in Roanoke. We're right in the center of the city, um, just basically, you know, a five-minute walk from downtown. 
Um, but we're separated by the interstate from downtown and the railroad from the more wealthy neighborhoods in the city. And so um, our neighborhood has always kind of been, you know, that part of town over there, right? Um, the other side of the tracks, the other side of the interstate or whatever uh, you may want to think. Um, one thing that I've, I've noticed uh, throughout my life and my time in the church is uh, that we pray for revival a lot. You know, when revival's coming up, uh, our scheduled revival that we put on the calendar, um, which I find a little bit funny, uh, but obviously we do those things for a reason. Um, we pray for revival, and we do the 24 hours of prayer. We do the 30 days of prayer and all that kind of stuff. And recently, the Lord's been leading me to Isaiah chapter 58 on our Sunday morning services. And in it's the prophet is calling our attention to the plight of the Israelites. They're living in exile. They're crying out to God. They're fasting and they're praying. And as they're fasting and praying, they're not seeing changes in their situation. And they cry out. They say, are you not seeing all this fasting and praying that we're doing, God? Um, our situation isn't changing. We're oppressed, right? Uh, and so through the prophet's words, through the words of God, God challenges his people to begin considering that, that they are uh, they're calling out for a rescue from exile while they're doing the very things to oppress those who they think are lower than them. Right. And God calls them out on that. And we could read all of this for you. Um, in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, the Lord says, is this, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice right. and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he'll say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of the oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You see, the, the people there in Isaiah, they're crying out for freedom from the oppression that they're suffering in exile. And God says, this is the kind of fasting and praying that I deal in. And that is breaking oppression and freeing the yoke of oppression on people and injustice, right? Um, listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray and fast and all those kinds of things. But the Lord is calling out these individuals here who are praying and fasting on one hand and just kind of doing whatever they want on the other, right? And maybe even oppressing others. It says, the Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Isaiah here is speaking to the Israelites' tendency to be an inward-focused people. Their faith, both as individuals and as a community, their trust in God, was largely based on what have you done for me lately, right? It's an economy that operated like this. I pray, I fast, I seek righteousness, therefore I receive from God his blessings. I receive righteousness from him because of what I am putting into this. I mean, they say, we're fasting and praying, Lord. What are you doing, Right? This economy idea is something that I want to work with today as I share with you a little bit of our context. But essentially, their mindset here is the more holy, the more I pray, the more I fast, the more likely it would be that God would show up. And this passage serves as a call to selflessness, and it also serves 
as a call to a new economy. God's instructions to the Israelites is to stand up for the oppressed rather than to contribute to the oppression of those who are under them, to feed the hungry, to shelter the wanderer, clothe the naked. God's answer to them is, if you do these things, then you will see that when you call on the name of the Lord, he will answer. You will be strengthened and he will satisfy your needs even when you walk through a sun-scorched land. This is a new economy, okay? It is not a give-to-receive economy here that the Lord is describing. It's, it's what the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it, it's about loving and serving. And, and, and of course, we know Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? But the reality for the people here, they needed to realize is, I'm not giving so that I can receive. When I give, I am giving with the same love that God gives to me. And therefore, in that process, my own heart is filled as I'm pursuing the things that God is calling me to do, which in this case, in particular, is free them from their injustice, the yoke of oppression that is upon them, right? So the question is, what is the yoke of oppression and the injustices that are in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and that our church is uniquely positioned to stand up for, right? What does that look like? What does that look like in our community? What does that look like in your neighborhood? What does that look like for you? I don't know about you, but I have a whole lot of people in my church who, who their, their understanding of an economy of grace is, I come to church, I pray, I try to do all the things that I'm supposed to do, pastor, so, you know, I should be okay, right? And then their world is rocked when there's a cancer diagnosis. Well, why is this happening to me? Or they lose a job. Well, I've been faithful to God. I'm even, I'm even giving tithe. I've never done that before, pastor, right? Like, I'm giving. God should give back, right? These are the kind of things, the conversations we have as pastors all the time. And it's a reality. Because a lot of us, our own economy is still based on this give-to-receive idea. I share all this to help you understand the context of our church, because it's really important in our own setting to get that a lot of the people, even in my own congregation, still have that kind of a mindset. We're working on it, aren't we all? Right? This new economy here that we need to understand is, is that rather than giving to God in order to receive, rather... We should give to others so the, as the Lord will fill us with strength to continue on in that purpose, in that mission, right? And the commitment that we give to God in service to others because of our love for God, then he'll fill us with the strength that we need, with the spirit that we need to continue to do these things. Of course, this new economy is modeled in the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. So in, in Matthew, uh, we read Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, is that what is the most important commandment? We already said that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the comparison between uh, Matthew chapter 27 and the Great Commission to go and do, and Matthew chapter 25 and the sheep and the goats conversation, right? right? Um, and how those two need to be mutually mutually beneficial to each other, they need to go right alongside of each other, um, that we should be loving and serving um, others as we... Uh, seek to share the good news with people who haven't yet heard it. So for us, all of this boils down to say this. Roanoke First uh, is a church that has been in transition, I feel like, for probably two decades. Um, years ago uh, was a church that was based on a contractional model, right? We do the things, we and people see the things that we're doing, therefore they come and want to be a part of what we're doing. And as we do these things, whether it's an event or music or a, a program or a ministry or whatever it might be, they like that what they see, and therefore they join our congregation or start coming you know, more regularly, and we get a chance to share the gospel with them. 
right? There's nothing wrong with that model, except for when your neighborhood changes drastically. And our neighborhood has been changing a lot over the last 30 or 40 years. So um, let me give you a little bit of context about Roanoke itself. As I said, the railroad tracks and the interstate kind of bisect it. So you've got four quadrants, and we're southeast. Uh, but when you say, I'm from southeast in Roanoke, you might as well be saying that you're from the hood, okay? Um, now, northwest Roanoke is also pretty rough. So if you say, I'm from southeast, um, traditionally that has meant I'm from the poor white part of town, okay? Um, and if you say, I'm from northwest, that traditionally has meant I'm from the poor black part of town. And those two parts of town have not liked each other forever. It's just kind of how it is. Um, you know, Rob, you lived there for a while. You'd probably say that's how it was when I was there, right? Um, and that's just a reality. Um, it's just kind of what it is. Our part of town is really close uh, to where the railroad was headquartered. That's why Roanoke is the, the city that it is, is because the railroad was headquartered there. Norfolk was uh, Norfolk Southern, right, was headquartered there. And uh, but that's all left now. Uh, our part of the neighborhood, most of the people who live there worked at the railroad, and. Uh, Pretty much all of those jobs are gone. So what that has left for us in our community are a lot of vacant homes that have become <coughs> either dilapidated and run down, uh, abandoned, or have been turned into rental properties. And it's not uncommon in our neighborhood for one person to own 30 homes in our neighborhood and rent them all out, or a company, rather, to own 30 homes in our neighborhood and rent them all out. And if you talk with anybody who's familiar with urban neighborhoods, what they'll tell you is that you know, the, the lower your rate of home ownership is in your neighborhood, uh, that tends to indicate the poverty level um, and the, the mentality that people have in your neighborhood. Now think about this. If you were renting a house um, and it needed the vinyl siding repaired, uh, but your landlord wasn't repairing it, would you spend all the money to repair that house? No. Right? And so that's what happens in our neighborhood is uh, houses become run down, buildings become run down, and landlords who long time ago moved out of those neighborhoods and out to the suburbs, they, just, you know, they don't repair them, um, they don't fix them up, they don't keep them up. And so what ends up happening is you drive through our neighborhood in Roanoke, we're, like I said, we're a five-minute walk from downtown, but the road that connects us to downtown, when you cross over the interstate and come into our neighborhood, these are the first things that you see. You see weeds growing up everywhere. You see dead trees just there. You see a, a massive church building that is completely abandoned with plywood all over all the windows. The next four homes right next to that church building are all boarded up. And two homes across the street have been burned out for about six months and no one has done anything with them. What kind of pride does that build in a neighborhood? Not a whole lot, right? And when you come into town, it's like, welcome to Southeast, here's two burned out houses, four boarded up homes, and a church building that's been abandoned, right? It's a pretty big challenge. Uh, it's really difficult for our neighborhood to kind of overcome that perception. It's really difficult for us to be anything other than mm, southeast when that is the mentality that people have about their own neighborhood. Um, our church is located right up the street from all of those houses. We're right in the heart of the neighborhood. Um, we're on Highland Ave there in Roanoke, and uh, we're not off of one of the main streets. We're just kind of up in the neighborhood a little bit. So you have to get off the main road and come up into where there are a lot of houses, a lot of people live right in that area. And on my street alone, I think every single house except for mine and our other parsonage at the church owns, I think every single one of them is a rental home. So what that means for me is that my neighbors, even though I've lived there for three years, I've had different neighbors in almost every house since I've lived there. 
So let me ask you this as a church, if you're a neighborhood ministry where you're thinking the people right across the street from us, I'd love to you know, get to know them and build a relationship with them and, and start to you know, share good news of Jesus Christ with them, and then they move, right? And so it becomes a really big challenge. So what do you do? Well, a church that maybe decades ago was based on let's attract people and get them to come here, if that's your model and that's what you continue to do, um, to put on an event that's going to get people to come or, or have the best program or the best music or whatever that might look like, people who live out in the suburbs and moved out of the city because they didn't want to deal with all the crime and the stuff that's in the city, how much are they going to want to pass 10 other churches on their way to come to yours and pass burned out homes and boarded up homes and all of that along the way? They're not going to, right? No matter how Nazarene they are, and by the way, in Roanoke, where my church is, I'm, a, I'm literally a three-minute drive from two other Nazarene churches and a five-minute drive from Eastgate Church in the Nazarene. So we're pretty well saturated as far as where our Nazarene churches are. Um, so if you're thinking... What Nazarene church are they going to drive to? Maybe they want to go to a Nazarene church. Well, they're going to pass two or three other ones on the way to mine, right? So it's a, that's a challenge. It's difficult. It starts to make you ask the question, um, when people no longer are coming and driving into your neighborhood to come to your church, it makes us as a church begin to ask the question, are we doing the right things here? Are we doing the right things and, and for the last couple of decades, you can look at attendance numbers for our church, and you can see that our church has been in decline. But I don't think that's because anybody, and I, the pastors who have gone before me are great pastors, and the people who are on the church board now are the same ones who were on the church board then. And they're wonderful people. They have great vision, and the Lord is you know, working with them. It's nobody's fault that that has happened. It's the reality of our neighborhood. And it's the reality of what we were talking about earlier, that for the first time in America, you know, the nuns, not the religious nuns, but the other nuns, are the number one, uh, you know, uh, statement when you say, what religion am I? None. I have no really real religious affiliation. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us when we see our neighborhood in decline and those statistics coming up that also we would be challenged as a church. So that's made us start to rethink um, some different things. And really where our church has been, I think, for probably about the last 10 years is trying to shed off that idea that we're going to try to attract people by having the best game in town or doing the best things that we can to get them to come to our church and instead has forced us to become a neighborhood ministry, a parish ministry, almost like the Catholic Church used to do, where our church ministers to our area. You realize that when the Church of the Nazarene was... uh, growing and, and new churches were coming into new, new uh, cities and new towns, you, know, you weren't called to be the pastor of Roanoke First Church of the Nazarene. You were called to be the Nazarene pastor in Roanoke, right? And so for us, uh, I like to look at it this way. I'm not the pastor of Roanoke First Church of the Nazarene. I happen to be a pastor for a Nazarene church in southeast Roanoke. Right, And so I want to be a neighborhood church. We want to be a neighborhood church that reaches the people in our neighborhood. But if our neighborhood is full of transient people who are moving in and out, and for all different number of reasons they might be moving in and out, how do we do that and still look successful in the ways that we measure success? Is that really what our goal should be? Is it? You know? I mean, we all have to report numbers all the time, right? Um, So the reality is what the reality is for us. So that's been a big challenge for us. And you all know how it is. If you've been a pastor or attended even a church that has been in decline for years, you've got people in your church who are going to say, oh, you know, so-and-so's leaving, right? Did you hear that? 
right? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. There are less people here now than there were five years ago. And that just, that kind of mentality, that attitude is something that will continue to put your church in that, you know, that, that mode, right? But when you're trying to transition, you've got to get people to buy into, hey, things need to be a little bit different and are going to look a little bit different than what they have in the past. So for us, I think the previous pastors before me have been doing a great job of, of starting that transition. And now uh, we're kind of at a great place where we're getting to put some, some really cool building blocks in place that are starting to help us not only say this is not our mission as a church or this is our new mission as a church, but start to actually embody that in our program and what we're doing. So uh, for us, one of the processes that we've been doing, especially with the church board, is to learn and realize what our neighborhood is, the context of our ministry. So um, who are we trying to reach, um, and, and who is in our neighborhood, who's in our vicinity, and how do we know those things, okay? So for me, when I drive into my neighborhood, um, maybe you all know some things about urban neighborhoods, maybe you don't. So let me, let me do a little crowd thing here right now. Um, if you were to drive into an urban neighborhood and you were to identify it as a low-income neighborhood, what kind of businesses would you see? Does anybody have any ideas? Convenience stores. Convenience stores, yes. Yeah, anybody else? Liquor stores. Liquor stores, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, loan places. Loan places, yeah. Uh, check and cashing is a big one. Rent yeah. own. Rent to own, yep. You see a lot of those. We see a lot of those signs that say, uh, yeah, rent to own or we'll buy your junk house for cheap that kind of stuff and what they do with those is they just turn them into rental properties uh, you know do the bare minimum to get someone to live in that house yeah any other ideas one of the interesting things that you all said was you know convenience stores we don't have grocery stores in our neighborhood right? we don't have grocery stores in our, we don't have fresh produce in our neighborhood um, and so when you're in a low income neighborhood where you have more people who don't have cars um, they have to walk to get food so what do they do? They walk to the convenience store to, to CVS, and that's where they do a lot of their grocery shopping. How much is a gallon of milk at CVS compared to a gallon of milk at Food Lion? It's a lot more expensive, right? And so your, your food is more expensive. It's less healthy because you're getting you know, cereal and bags of chips and, and you know, things that are non-perishable, right? It, it's just less healthy. Um, we see a lot of pawn shops. The idea with a pawn shop, you, you take something that's worth something, and you give it to them, and they give you far less than what it's actually worth. Right, uh, check cashing that you mentioned, brother, is a huge one. Um, I've got some statistics here, and I, I'm, I'm off my notes already, but um, I've got some statistics here. Uh, the finance charge for check cashing, if you're not sure, or you might call it a payday loan, where someone knows they have a, a paycheck coming, so you go to the check cashing place, and they'll give you money for it beforehand. Um, did you know the interest rate on those kinds of things uh, can typically, this is not a maximum, typically can be 400% APR. Um, or more, that the finance charge ranges on top of that from 15 to $30 um, to borrow $100, right? When you're talking to people who are $400 behind on their electric bill already, $30 on top of whatever they're going to be paying, and they're going to put that whole check towards their electric bill so their power doesn't get cut off. For two-week loans, the finance charges could result in interest rates from 390% to 780%. So if you're trying to get, if you're poor and you have a job, you know you have a check coming, but it's going to come in two weeks, you're thinking, all right, I can go ahead and go to this check cashing place. That's predatory, right? That's predatory. But that's the reality for a lot of the people in my neighborhood. And I'll just tell you this, we don't have enough tithe coming in to pay $400 electric bills every week. 
Anybody else? You do, sense on our way, okay? <laughs> um, so what do we do in those situations? How do we help people? I had a lady who, who just four months ago, uh, the church helped her to pay $300 down on an electric bill, and she talked to me last night at Bible study, and they're $400 behind again. And I, I can't, I don't know how to help her, you know? And that's the reality for the situation that a lot of our people are in, right? So when you as a church, when you were previously this model of, of let's you know, do the things that are going to attract people to come to our church, let's have the best VBS, let's have the best music, and, and there's nothing wrong with saying let's be the best that we can be, but when your neighborhood changes and you're no longer attracting people into the church like you used to, you have to rethink some things. So for us... When you look around our neighborhood and see those kinds of things happening, the, the businesses that are there in your neighborhood, you know, we have no grocery store, but we have like three fast food places, and you can get a burger from Hardee's, and a lot cheaper than you can get a gallon of milk at CVS, and all that kind of thing. It, it sets your neighborhood to come into what, what we would call a cycle of poverty, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, a family uh, has a child. That child is raised in poverty because that's where mom and dad were when they were in that situation. That kid knows nothing other than poverty. And all they see is their parents going to places like check cashing places, which get them in trouble. And I don't know about you all, but, but a lot of what I learned has come from my parents. But if a parent can't teach their child anything different, then they end up in the same situation. Um, children become a way to get a larger welfare check. Because that's what mom and dad did. Well, that's what mom did. Because a lot of our situations, the vast majority, I don't know who the children who are in our children's ministry, I don't know who their fathers are, and they may not either. That's a lot of our kids. This is a situation. So what do you do? What do you do? And why do I talk about all this? Because it provides clues to the context of our community and thus can show us the ways in which we can minister to our community. For us, we found that if... We were looking for lost people. We didn't have to go too far because a lot of the people in our neighborhood, not only are they lost spiritually, but in so many other ways. So what are some of the things that we do? Well, we offer a food pantry. We offer weekly, healthy, hot meals every Wednesday. We offer educational opportunities for children in our neighborhood. The first that our church offered years ago and started was a a low-cost daycare. I'm not sure what all the reasons for starting it were originally, But for us now, our daycare serves working families and working single parents in our neighborhood. It allows them to be able to work, right? So they can take their kids to our daycare, and they can work all day. Um, And it's, you know, it's in the neighborhood. The vast majority of the families that use our daycare live in our neighborhood. And our daycare, one of our goals is to always be one of the most affordable daycares that anyone can find. We're not trying to make money, um, and it's close by. One of the best ways to break the cycle of poverty in the community is to provide educational opportunities for children. So if they're able to succeed academically, then they'll eventually get jobs that will hopefully provide for their families, right? So for us, I would say that we are in the beginning of figuring a lot of this stuff out, right? So our daycare is great, but I would love to see this become something even more than that as part of uh, what our church would love to see this become is, is maybe a private, free, or very cheap uh, elementary school or something like that that we could offer right there in our neighborhood. Now, there are public schools um, in the neighborhood, too, and so there's, there's nothing wrong with public schools, uh, but maybe this is an opportunity for us as well. But one of the best things that you can do 
to break a family out of the cycle of poverty is to come into relationship with a child in the way that you can help teach them and guide them along their way, right? Um, so for us, the daycare that we have is a huge part of that. Uh, and the Lord's been blessing that. It's been growing like crazy. And uh, we just raised our cap um, by 70 students, and we're almost halfway to reaching that new cap. Uh, with 100. We have 155 kids that come through our doors every day. And uh, it originally started, like I said, as a way to serve these working families in our neighborhood. It allows these women or men to work and find care for their kids that's affordable and close by. So this daycare that we have, like I said, it's growing, it's doing all these things, and I hope that we're able to take next steps in the future, perhaps even you know provide this low-cost private school. Uh, but I look around, and like I said, you know the finances as far as what's coming in on Sunday morning, is that is, is that what is going to pay the bill for all of this kind of stuff? And so we have to continually think, what's our next step there for us? So um, something I've been exploring recently is to start pursuing some different government grants. So for us, in our community, in our context, in a low-income neighborhood, there is money available out there for this kind of educational opportunity. But a lot of times that's harder to get because we are a religious organization. So um, we've got some bridges to cross there yet. As I mentioned earlier, we also provide a meal and a food pantry on Wednesday evenings. So uh, last year, uh, about actually about two years ago, um, the opportunity arose for a food pantry. We had some volunteers who stepped up uh, both with their time and with finances. So we, I did a quick check around our neighborhood, and there are five other churches within like a five to ten minute walk of our church that are providing a uh, food pantry already. You know, So it's that question of do we need to duplicate what XYZ church down the street is already doing? Not only that, but there's a Salvation Army, literally a two-minute walk from our church, that has two mobile meal station trucks that go around the neighborhood and provide meals for people. So do we need to be doing this? So in our planning, when we ask, is this a worthy investment of time, energy, and finances, it brings me to one of the biggest things that we've been doing as our church to try and change our thinking. And that comes from you know, just what I've been talking about already. Love God, love others, help others love God. So this is what our mission statement, our trumpeting statement has been as a church for the last two years, basically, is to ask, is what we're doing right now, whatever ministry, whatever small group, whatever it might be, does it fit those three criteria? So we're trying to organize in this way. We want to be doing things as a church that help grow our love of God deeper, right? Discipleship, right? We want to love others. We want to do things that show the love of God to others. But we don't stop there. We want to help those people come to know God, come to love God themselves. So when it comes to our daycare, when it comes to our food pantry, when it comes to our adult Sunday school classes and small groups and our church on Sunday morning, you know, obviously all of these things fall into different areas. So, so a small group might grow the love of God for the people who are in that small group well, right? But if it's just people within the church and, and they're just there, just doing their thing, being, you know, uh, learning more about God and all of that, then it doesn't fit those three criteria because out of a love for God should naturally flow a love for our neighbor, right? And for out of a love for our neighbor should naturally flow the gospel, right? And so in that small group setting, we ask, all right, not only are you loving God by doing these things and growing closer to God, but we want you to find ways to love others, Right, But what we found is that a lot of our events, a lot of our activities and, and our small groups and things like that, people would volunteer 
or they would um, you know, do something, but they were fearful to actually share the gospel, and our depth of relationship with people wasn't there. So for us in our neighborhood, low-income neighborhood, a lot of people have a distrust for the church. I think that's just probably true everywhere. But in our neighborhood, we found that we could get people to come to food pantries and VBS and all that kind of stuff. We could blow the doors off with attendance that way, but I could never get people to come to church on Sunday morning. So we asked the question, is our goal to get people to church on Sunday morning? Right. I mean, obviously, that's, that should be one of our goals as a church. But we've got people coming to all these different areas. So let's share the gospel in those places, in those areas, right? Let's do that there. They're there already. It's a barrier to entry that's removed, right? So let's do that there. So our food pantry, our goal is not to have a thousand people come through our doors with our food pantry every week. We know there's plenty of places for people to get food in our neighborhood. But the families who come to our daycare, they have a relationship with us already. They know us already. Their kids are there. They trust us with their children. So we start offering a food pantry on Wednesday night that starts at 6. What time is pickup time for kids on Wednesday? 6 o'clock. So you go right from picking up your kids to going to the food pantry and getting food from the food pantry. But our food pantry is not just a place where you walk in and there's bags of food that are ready. We have five. Uh, well, we're working on it. We have right now three people. We're trying to get to five people um, who are... Uh, just the kind of people who just ooze Jesus everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? And, and they are there, and they're sitting in the food pantry area when people come in, and their whole goal is to be like a, a community missionary kind of person, mm-hmm. where when you walk in uh, from that moment, they're smiling, they're shaking your hand, they're welcoming you to our church, to our food pantry, they're building a relationship with you. And the whole thing is they sit down with every person who's going to come through our food pantry and talk with them and pray with them. And the idea is if Jim, one of the guys who attends my church, uh, meets the same people every couple of weeks who are coming to our food pantry, when they walk out of that door, he opens up his notebook and he writes down, uh, John came to food pantry tonight, shared a prayer request for his mom who is sick and, and his job at you know, uh, American freight that he lost this week. He's looking for a new job and all that. The next time that John comes through those doors, there's Jim. Jim remembers his face, shakes his hand, says, John, how you doing, buddy? Glad to have you here. Hey, uh, I've been praying for you about your mom. You know, and they go and they sit down. He says, did you find a job? Are you still looking? Where are you at in that process? So we're building relationship and community right there. But that's not the end of it. So at 630, our doors across the street open in our gym for our hot meal. And uh, we started doing this a year ago, and uh, my church board and some of my leaders looked at me like I was crazy when I said, I want to do a meal every week, every Wednesday, I want to do a hot meal, and you know, we want to prepare for 50 people, and there's no budget for this, so we need to, to be 100% on the donations that come in, and uh, that hasn't really happened exactly, but we're finding the money to make it happen, okay? Um, and some people from the church have donated to make it happen, but anyway... Uh, it was, it was going really well for about two months um, a couple of years ago when we started it. Then all my people got burned out. They, they didn't want to keep cooking, right? Because they're cooking for funeral dinners and they're cooking for weddings and for this and that. And it's just a whole lot. I thought, boy, I don't know how we're going to do this. And I just started praying. I was like, Lord, I don't, we're going to have to cancel this. I can't keep doing it. It's killing people and, you know, it's just too much. And um, the next Sunday, a couple walked through our door and he's the head dietitian for the VA hospital in Roanoke puts together their meals for everything that they do for all of their patients there at the hospital. 
and his wife has been his sous chef for his entire life, and they've completely taken this thing over. Um, I mean, the Lord is awesome, right? Isn't that great? And I told Joe, and uh, his wife's name is Tomoko, I told Joe and Tomoko, I said, I'll be honest with you guys, I've been praying, Lord, I'm either going to shut this down or you've got to send somebody. And they walked through our doors um, that Sunday morning. They came to Bible study on third or Wednesday night. They came. She came to the women's Bible study on Thursday morning. It was like within a week they had been there for five years. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had somebody come to your church like that? Um, and it's an incredible blessing. Uh, but not only that, Joe's passion for this ministry is inciting passion in others. And now we've got plenty of people to cook. We've got six people standing on the serving line every Wednesday night. We've got so many people coming that we can't hardly get everybody served before our Bible studies are supposed to start at seven o'clock. So it's another thing that we've done, right, is our food pantry is from 6, or our, our daycare is all day long, pickup is at 6, food pantry is from 6 to 6.30, and then from 6.30 to 7 is a free meal every single week. And Joe is the kind of guy who he doesn't just cook spaghetti. How many times can he eat spaghetti at church? <laughs> oh my goodness gracious, I'm sick of it. He doesn't just cook spaghetti, but he gets creative. He's making all kinds of cool stuff. And a lot of the kids in our neighborhood are like, just give me hot dogs. But, you know, um, he keeps making this stuff. And, and it's awesome. It's good food. And uh, we had yakisoba noodles at a church luncheon the other or church dinner the other night. Yakisoba noodles. Go figure, right? Um, but that's what we had. So, anyway, right at 7 o'clock is when all of our Bible studies start. Our kids group, our youth group, and our adult Bible study. We were having this problem where... Um, because of the unique uh, nature of our church property, um, our sanctuary and our you know, kind of Sunday school classrooms are on one side of the street, and our gym and our youth group and some of our other Sunday school classrooms are on the other side of the street. Um, but it's not like it would be here. This is a neighborhood, so you've got houses all in between and cars going back and forth everywhere all the time. And so we had this problem where we would do all this, the, the daycare, then the food pantry, then the hot meal, and then the Bible studies, but our Bible study was across the street in the church building, and our hot meal was in the gym, and the food pantry was in the basement of the church, and the kids were in the upstairs of the church, and the youth group was in the basement of the Family Life Center, the gym across the street, and it was like we were losing all these people because you know, we were asking them to walk here, then walk there, then walk there, then walk here, and you've got to know which door to go in. And you know, We've got one of these buildings that was built three different times throughout the years. You know what I'm talking about? Our original building was in the 50s, and then they added on in the 70s, and then our Family Life Center was built in the early 2000s. And so nothing makes sense, you know? Uh, like here, you walk in the foyer, and children's wing is that way, and youth wing is that way, and whatever. But at our church, it could be anywhere. If you don't know, it's hard to get there. Um, so uh, we removed the barrier from entry and turned a storage room in our Family Life Center um, into a, a classroom for us to do our, our adult Bible study. And so we, you know, literally, it'd be right outside that door is where they eat, and they come in the door right here for Bible study. You remove a barrier from entry for people. And I know that might not seem like a lot to you, but for us, in our context, where we're trying to build trust with people who have had individuals burn them over and over and over again, the more that I can remove things that don't feel natural, that don't feel easy, that don't feel like a big commitment, that are just like, hey, you're already here, you know, and we just watched your kids all day, and we just gave you all these groceries, and we just gave you this awesome meal, why don't you just stay for another 45 minutes for Bible study? And it's right there in that room, literally 10 feet away from where you're sitting eating your meal right now. And so what we've been able to do is create this culture around what we're doing on Wednesday nights, where it's almost like we've got a little church going on Wednesday nights that's different than what meets on Sunday morning. 
Now, I don't know that it would ever be able to support itself financially, right? Um, but the reality is that what we're doing there is reaching people who would be extremely uncomfortable coming into my sanctuary on Sunday mornings. Like I said, we've got a sanctuary that was built in the 50s, so it's got all this stained glass and the archways and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so you come into that context, and you're someone who never comes to church, and you're wearing sweats, and you got tattoos, and you smell like weed, and you come into church. I'm just being real, Okay. Our Wednesday night Bible studies, a lot of interesting smells in that room, okay? Just, just, I have one of my board members, she said, Pastor, I love what's happening here. I just got to tell you, one of my barriers in ministry is, is smell. And I just don't know, Pastor, if I can keep coming to this. I said, well, we'll, we'll crank the air conditioning up and get some air moving. I want you to keep coming. So um, anyway, uh, you know, that's, that's the reality of what we're doing on Wednesday night. But what's really cool is, you know, when I'm coming there on Wednesday, when I'm there as the pastor, I am the pastor to all these people who have never come to my church on a Sunday morning, right? Right. But we have come alongside their family in multiple different ways. They may move, and it really hurts when someone moves to the other side of town. Like I said, Northwest is on the other side of town, but housing is even cheaper there than it is in our part of town. So a lot of times we lose people over there. They move to the other side of town. They don't have any transportation. Um, So we try our best to get a van out there to pick them up. Um, But if you've done van ministry, you know, you go knock on someone's door and they never come, right? And so that doesn't always work for us. Um, So what we're doing, I asked the question, if you've got people who are moving out of your neighborhood, they're not staying, what do you do in that situation? For us, what we have found that works is trying to come alongside families in multiple different ways, providing love and care for them in multiple different places in multiple different ways. And we're trying to make sure that everything we're doing is drawing people into a deeper relationship with God. So that's why we have our Bible studies on Wednesday night. It's loving others. That's why we do our meals that night. And it's helping others love God, right? By all of this, we love God. Therefore, God is filling us, just like we talked about out of the passage in Isaiah, God is giving us his spirit to be able to continue to do these things. And it's not about us giving to receive, but God empowers us to do these things. He brings Joe and Tomoko, who can help us cook. He brings Jim and Deb, who are also new, by the way, who run that food pantry ministry that I was talking about earlier. He brings them along, and he gives us what we need to be able to do the things that he's calling us and asking us to do. When I was at Shepherd, Jay Height used to say this thing, and I've latched on to it recently. He said, Cam, I don't know that our church is ever going to be the biggest church in town, right? I don't know that we're ever going to have the flashiest programs or whatever. But he said, I want us to be like a Volvo station wagon. Now, Volvos are pretty nice these days. They're a luxury car now, but you remember those old Volvo wagons that just they're a box on wheels? You all know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Um, my brother had one. I can't remember. They, they had There were a bunch of numbers in the name. I can't. 240DLs, I think, what my brother drove. And the thing wasn't pretty. He had a, a million holes in his catalytic converter, so it sounded like, I don't know, it sounded like all hell was breaking loose when he turned his car on. Um, but the reality is that it was a safe car. It had enough room for the entire family, right? It wasn't pretty. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't very fast. But it got you there safe. You know, you have all the room for your family, and in the back, you still have enough room for your baggage, right? And Jay Height used to say that to me. He said, I want us to be like a Volvo station wagon. He said, we're not going to be fast. <laughs> we may not be pretty. might not be the flashiest thing. But we're going to get you there. We're going to get you there reliably, right? We're going to get you there safe. We're going to get you there with your whole family. And there's going to be enough room for your baggage along the way. Right? And so for us as a church, what that looks like is coming alongside people in multiple different places. 
So last night we had a woman who was at our Bible study, and her name is Chandrea. She has three little boys, a couple different dads um, of those boys. They've been evicted or kicked out of wherever they've lived, I think, four times in the last year. Um, they have no car, um, and she is receiving um, assistance from the government to be able to do all the things that they're doing, right? She's a nice lady. She is very knowledgeable about Scripture and about the Lord, um, but her life and, and the things that are going on in her life, um, she's made a lot of choices that have led down a bad path, but she's also raised in this cycle of poverty like we were talking about before, right? But Chandrea, her boys... Uh, came. They know they're graduated now from it, but they came to our daycare. So we built relationship there. They come to our VBS during the summer, right? They come to uh, all of the children's things that we do around the neighborhood. Uh, at the beginning of the school year, we do a backpack event where we give away groceries and we give away um, school supplies. And not only that one, there's a person in our church. She works at a local hair salon, a, a high-end hair salon, and uh, we built a relationship with them where uh, their hairstylists come to our back-to-school event and give kids these high-end haircuts for free before they go back to school. And I'll tell you what, for those little girls who have never had a real haircut other than their mama just across the bottom, you know, for them to sit there and have the updo and all that kind of stuff, it is awesome. It's awesome. So we're doing all of these things, trying to build relationships with people, coming alongside of them, and uh, the same people keep coming back. Uh, Shepard used to call it a compendium of care, Right? where you're walking alongside people in multiple different places, in multiple different ways. And it's really been cool to watch what God has been doing. Now, has it resulted in my church growing on Sunday morning, folks? Not really. Has it resulted in us spending a lot of money? Yes. Um, but it's resulting in a lot of people hearing about the gospel. Amen. People finding community in that Wednesday night program that we have. And uh, people coming to learn and know more about Jesus. And I've been able to see the ways that gospel and the grace of God have been interacting with people. That two years ago, I felt like, man, a lot of this stuff that we're doing just kind of feels like we're just doing it because we think we need to be helping. And it's got really no structure to it. Um, but we're working on it. Not everybody on my church is in, on board. I want you to know that, that I don't have it all figured out. I don't know everything. I'm not an expert. I many, many times feel like I'm from the weakest group, and I'm the weakest one in my weakest group, um, but God keeps putting a, a guy who you know grew up in small town, uh, rural, white as can be, uh, Indiana, into these diverse neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods, and it's not about me, it's about him, so please don't think that I have it all figured out. Our church has not reported growth this year, okay? So don't think that we've got something that's exploding out of the building and you know all of this stuff. But we're trying to faithfully do what God is leading us to do as he leads us to it. So anyway, uh, Adrian, I didn't get to my questions around the table. But um, one of the things I thought, we've got just a few minutes and I don't want to keep talking. Um, one of the things I thought and we had talked about was around your tables, could you for a few minutes talk about the context of where your church is? Okay, and the, the context of your neighborhood and who the oppressed might be in your neighborhood. For us, it's families like Chandrea who have grown up in 
you know, the cycle of poverty and don't know much else other than that. And maybe talk about what you're either doing or what the Lord might be putting on your heart as far as what he could be asking you to do to meet people where they are and break the cycles of injustice and oppression um, that are in your neighborhood. And that might be very different for some of us. You might be in a country church, you might be in an urban church, you might be in a suburban church, you might be here at uh, Harrisonburg or wherever. So it's going to look different for everybody. And it's okay that you're figuring it out because we're definitely still figuring it out. Um, anyway, Adrian, anything else? No, let's talk for just a few minutes around the table. We'll close on time. But let's spend just a minute or two um, allowing each person to share a little bit about your context. And as Cam was sharing, maybe there's something that came to your mind and your heart about your own community. This has been a really inspiring um, time. I love that um, when I have the least to do with teaching church, it's most inspiring. So that taught me something today. I'm going to learn from that. Um, I just really enjoyed receiving today, uh, really. And this has been really, really inspiring. Cameron, thank you um, for for sharing. And uh, it gave I was thinking of a few things. Cameron and I, when we talked on the phone, we were laughing a little bit because we... We're kind of young, I think. He's younger than me. I won't tell you how young he is and how old I am. But, um, yeah, right. We have, I will ask how old your people think you are. Oh, yeah, right. But we had this kind of fun conversation about, uh, are there other young pastors in the district? But um, as he was speaking, I was really thankful. I said, God, thank you that you've entrusted Cameron to this district. Um, because there are, um, I, this last Sunday, we were talking about this idea of courage. And, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is obedience in spite of fear. And um, it takes a lot of courage to do what Cameron's doing in that church. I mean, he's not sharing the hard, I mean, he's not sharing the hard stories and the angry board members and the, you know, um, that to choose as a church that we're going to embrace our community, even if it means we're not going to grow on Sunday morning, even if it means financially it's going to be hard, even if it means that's not an easy, that's courage. Um, but thanks for your obedience. It inspires us. I mean, I mean that, and it challenges us. So maybe today is about us ensuring that Cameron knows that we're with him, and we're we're not just going to learn from him, but hopefully we're going to encourage him. And uh, I just feel inspired. I feel really grateful to be a part of something way bigger than myself. So, but yeah, I'm still asking, Lord, what is it that you're teaching me today through through this? So. Thanks for being here. I'm going to pray. God, we're just grateful. I'm so grateful to have been in the room today. I'm so inspired being with your people today. And um, thanks for just a glimpse of your kingdom today. (laughs) Thank you for what you're doing in Timberville through Todd and his ministry and what you're learning and growing through him. Thank you um, that we began today with kind of this inspiring word from Sarah to do what you're called to do. Do it. And now we're concluding with this. Just this vision, God, that of who we're called to reach and help us. Give us courage, God. Give us courage to obey you, even when it's hard. And um, I just feel so encouraged today to be a part of your body, of your kingdom. As we go, God, we go with you. We don't go on our own. We're not going to be brave and figure it out on our own. In fact, we're desperate for your presence to go with us. And so we ask that as we go, you would help uh Plant the ideas and the thoughts today in our mind that we need. Um, Show us what it means for us as we go back to our own churches and communities and homes. We want to be faithful, and thank you that you were faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.